when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're in the food business, you're a certain type of person. And I think that I'm, I've very much given up ever trying to become normal and so when people ask me to do abnormal things, I'm like, yeah, because it doesn't seem abnormal to me. Hi, I'm Helen Holliman, Editor-in-Chief of Munchies, and welcome back to the second installment from our Toronto series of Munchies, the podcast. If you're thrown in jail, most people would call a lawyer. But when restaurant people are in over their heads, they call John Bill. So for today's episode, we did exactly that. John is the owner of a fish counter and restaurant called Honest Weight. He's a champion oyster shucker and the most legendary fishmonger in Canada. And we aren't just talking about super expensive stuff that's been shipped in from Tokyo. John is sourcing sustainably. He's pushing mackerel instead of tuna and whelks in place of scallops. He's also your lifeline when you're two weeks out from opening the restaurant of your dreams and you need that miracle. French-Canadian institutions like Joe Beef in Montreal and Emwell's Steakhouse in Queens wouldn't have gotten as far as they have if it wasn't for John Bill. He's the voice of calm when you're in over your head. He's also your direct line to literally the world's greatest seafood. But his life philosophy bleeds well beyond the ocean. Yeah, so my name is John Bill, and we are in Toronto, Canada. I happen to be co-owner of a fish market and restaurant called Honest Weight and have been involved in the fishing and food business for the past 25 years or so. Tell us about the very first time that you ate seafood. Mm, I mean, my mom was very insistent that we try everything. And the, you know, we come from a Polish background. And so a lot of the stuff we ate in general was pickled pickled beets or pickled cabbage or pickled so pickled herring actually was the first thing that i ate and i really loved it like it was delicious because it fell in that category of vinegared foods that i really enjoyed you know and and then when she started to cook more actual fish dishes she was not a very good shopper per se and the fish itself wasn't that great and at the time it, you know no matter where you are, it's it's hard to find good fish. Like you would think in the Maritimes, like for a long time I lived in Prince Edward Island, and you'd think, oh, it's going to be easy to find good fish there. But it's not necessarily the case. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the truly good fish gets packaged right away for export and stuff like that. And people have similar taste buds everywhere. They like deep fried things. They like... Uh, mild things they like easy to prepare things and seafood has never fallen into many of those categories except of course for like fish and chips and stuff like that Um, but we didn't eat a lot of that kind of food so my actual first experiences with fish 
the very first one, as I say, was great. After that, it was a bit mediocre, and I was not that into it for a while. From that moment to fast forward, why did you get into seafood? When was the moment that you thought, okay, I'll, I'll try this out? I knew that my parents had grown up on farms, and my dad still had a, had a beef farm. But I wasn't, I preferred the water for whatever reason, you know, and I, I, I wanted to be in food growing and, and uh, that part of it because I loved working hard and stuff like that, but I really liked the water. And so I packed up my van and, and drove down to the wharf and PEI and just said, hey, I want, I want to work here at the oyster farm. And, and uh they looked at me and they didn't think I was up for it. They, you know, they literally said, ah, okay, go back in the back room and start scraping oysters kind of thing. And, and so I, I, I did that. And I was thinking, this is exactly what I want to do. Literally standing, staring at a cement wall, scraping oysters. I'd been working in restaurants before that and, you know, working with seafood, among other things. And really enjoyed that aspect, but I I never got the joy and pleasure that I got actually handling thousands and thousands of oysters a day and just literally standing in a room and reaching into the water and pulling on another tray of oysters and and cooking a thousand lobsters and stuff like that. So it was really when I was at that oyster farm in Prince Edward Island that that it was I understood at that point that I had found the, exactly the thing that I wanted to do. So much of what we eat is is really transformed significantly from its natural state, you know. Um, even we are realizing now that carrots are heavily graded, you know, and a lot of the carrots are misshapen and there's this huge ugly food movement now where they're trying to get Albertsons to sell ugly shaped vegetables and things like that. And with oysters and clams and mussels, I mean, you throw out the dead and the broken ones, but that's it. You get that whole creature and you eat that whole creature you there's you with an oyster you literally just open it and eat it you can bake it and fry it and stuff like that but it's totally valid and enjoyable and so socially acceptable to eat that whole creature raw and formerly alive you know moments ago sort of thing and with clams and mussels and uh, you know those sort of shellfish it's it's the same and so the the lack of transformation the lack of manipulation and the the there's a cultural sort of link i think between you can imagine people a thousand years ago eating things exactly the same way you know they would have maybe put clams in a in a fire pit or on some stones you know the traditional clam bake sort of idea of course now we've modernized it to a certain degree but you know, the process is the same where you heat up stones in a fire pit and cook things that way or eating the oysters on the shore or, you know, it, it, we're still doing that. We're not, we haven't done that much. We haven't figured out a better way to eat that food. And I think that that's a massive, massively important link to our past that I don't feel we get with too many other food products. Going back to the idea of, you know, the first day that you're there in Prince Edward Island at, the, at this place shucking oysters, I mean, what is it about 
the process of doing that that actually what is the joy in that for you well it's funny i wasn't even shucking oysters so shucking oysters is the fun part because you're doing it in front of people usually or you know under the pressure of service or some of that this was literally cleaning barnacles and seaweed off of oysters with like a paint scraper you're literally scrubbing each oyster just so that because for federal regulations they need to be somewhat um, free of debris so you scrape them clean and then you put them through this little washer to rinse off the mud and it was I think it was the fact that I'd gone backwards from the restaurant business where you see people enjoying and you do a shot with them and you get tipped out and all that and I'd worked all the way back to each one of those oysters that I scraped and put into a box getting shipped to New York or Toronto was going to be transformed into a meal or a memory or uh, an enjoyable moment for somebody. When I see them not treated that well in restaurants, it bums me out because it's like a shitload of work, man, to get that one oyster to you and for the person opening the oyster to mess it up and for the person enjoying the oyster to, I don't know, be wasted out of their mind and not really paying attention and looking for the cheapest one because, you know, buck a shuck is a good, easy way to get them or something like that. I don't know. I, I, I feel like we need to celebrate food. And, and, and when I was scraping the oysters in PEI, it was the beginning of the celebration. It was a thousand miles away from the celebration and, and maybe a few days away from it. But, you know, it was laying the groundwork for that beautiful, fun time in the restaurant. So you spent a decade farming oysters? That's Nick Rose again, our Canadian staff writer. You heard him on the last episode. Uh, then you made the move back into like working with restaurants. What was the impetus for that? Well, the impetus was uh, Fred Moran and Dave McMillan from Joe Beef now. I had been selling them oysters at their previous restaurants where they were just the chefs and we had become pretty good friends for various reasons we both like to drink a lot and uh, work hard and I had come to Montreal I'd been traveling around all over helping to sell oysters and by doing that I would make friends with some of my buyers or chefs or whatnot and Fred and Dave became very good friends very quickly for what you know as i say we were just like brothers in arms kind of brothers in spirit and i had always joked with them i said look if you guys ever open your own restaurant give me a call i'm gonna quit my job in the maritimes and i'll move to montreal and and give you a hand and that's what they did in 2005 they fred shot me an email he goes it's gonna happen it's gonna be called joe beef i said yeah i'll be there no problem so in august i left saint john and and headed to Montreal and that was it helped paint the floors at Joe Beef and and uh Fred and I were starving like we were all starving there was no money at all we were living in Fred's parents basement up in Cartierville which is a an unknown neighborhood in the north end of Montreal and uh just literally subsisting on like one piece of pate for three days that wasn't even refrigerated you know because we couldn't afford to plug the fridges in I mean it sounds pathetic and cliche but it was it was really messed up. Like, we had literally no dough. And then, you know, the Joe Beef opened, and the first day it opened, or the fir- after the first week, we gave ourselves each 500 bucks or something. And, of course, we went out and blew it all that night, you know, like <laughs> champagne and whatever. We got a hotel room, and 
didn't want to go to the parents' basement, you know, wanted to like live it up downtown one night and then the next day we were broke again. So, you know, it was Fred and Dave. They, they got me back into that moment of celebration and it was great and it's been great and, and I'm, I'm happy now. I kind of have a hybrid life. Yeah, well, it sounds like based on the chefs I've spoken to, you kind of have this legendary reputation as being like a fixer, you know, weeks before opening a restaurant you call john and he'll help you out put out fires or whatever why do you think you have that reputation i think it's because i don't ask for any money and i put my head down and live in a trailer for three weeks for no good reason you know i think you it it when you're opening a restaurant if you've done it before you know how hard it is if you've never done it before it's it's really an alarming amount of work and right at the end when the money is gone and maybe you have an event booked or events booked or the pressure's on. You just need to get it open. And, and sometimes you just need a fresh set of arms or a fresh set of eyes. And because I've done it before and I don't mind putting my head down and just getting the job done without worrying about the details, I rarely negotiate, never, I never negotiate anything, you know, because I'm always doing it for friends or, or somebody I know and respect that, that, I think they get it. They understand, okay, I can trust this guy with anything now so that they can hand me their credit card or I can jump in their car or I can do those things, the things that need to get done. And if I say, look, I need to go to the Bowery to pick up this waffle maker like I did for M. Wells because I had this vision of having this dish on the menu, the the Solomon Gundy dish, which was turned out to be something very popular and you know featured in the New York Times a couple weeks later. But it was like, do we really need to spend 700 bucks on a waffle maker? Like, I'm broke, man. And I'm like, trust me, it's if you because if you buy the shit waffle maker and it's a popular dish, in a week later you're buying another shit waffle maker, and a week later you're buying another shit waffle maker. And if so, you buy the good one to start with, and then it becomes popular and it goes on the cover of the New York Times, and then you're like, thank God we got the good waffle maker, you know? And that 700 bucks is paid for itself in three weeks or something like that. But you know, there's a there's a massive level of trust, as I say, because in a restaurant for many of the people that open them is a, is a direct expression of their heart, you know, and, and of their soul and their mind and their experiences. And, you know, for somebody to, to come in that's not been part of that process from the beginning and just say in those last few weeks, we need to do this, we need to do this, you know, you can't do that without a massive level of trust. And, and so I think, as I say, the fact that I'm just going to come in and donate my brain and and body to to that effort without worrying about the contractual details of it really uh, helps the relationship and 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 we get things done. Like it's amazing when you can get things done when what you can get done when you when you have that much trust between a couple people. What do you think it is about your personality that? allows you to help people in this way i love challenges both physical and intellectual challenges and i get bored very easily and you know i need to stay refreshed and and when somebody i respect gives me a call and asks me to do something i'm right off the bat i say yes and then I may regret it immediately afterwards or soon afterwards. But, but I've already said yes, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to stick with it. And 
and uh, I never regret it in the end. The restaurant and hospitality industry is is built on a you know a myriad of personalities and people, but the best of them are, are really good hosts, whether it's Danny Meyer or, or Dave McMillan. And I think that, you know, as hosts, that goes down to offering your bed when a chef's in town or something like that. And you say, yeah, no, crash at my place tonight, you know, because the, they're not making a lot of money or or you comp their dinner or something like that. And I think it's an extension of that that mindset and that, that personality trait that you, you know, it's it's lending a hand to lift that house or, you know, till that field or whatever it is. And it's all part of that sense of community that, you know, the, the, I think the best restaurant people understand that it is a bit of a tribal situation and that, you know, as much as you want to become a normal person or fit in, you're never going to. Like, it's just not going to happen. If you're in the food business, you're a certain type of person. And I think that I'm, I've very much given up ever trying to become normal. And so when people ask me to do abnormal things, I'm like, yeah, because it doesn't seem abnormal to me. There's no money in restaurants in general. Yeah, you hear about the occasional people who make the money, but I mean, even a Danny Meyer made his money in Shake Shack, you know. I mean, he made a certain amount of money at Union Square or wherever, but but so you're not getting into the restaurant business from a financial, you know, star in your eye thing. You're getting into it because you literally don't know what else you're going to do, you know, and I'm sure airplane pilots have the same kind of idea about themselves as well or whoever, but... I think with food, it's even more of a character flaw almost because the hours are punishing, the pay is zero, the you know the chances of becoming a substance abuse statistic are very high. The you know there's there's so many pitfalls to the restaurant industry. Yet people really get into it, and the people that are getting into it the most are the people that I love the most. You know, so I think that. If you don't see yourself as being part of that sort of tribe or, or you know, oddball clique of people, then I don't think you're seeing the restaurant business correctly. Tell us about the hardest night or the craziest sort of challenge that you've come across in opening restaurants and sort of... I mean, when we were getting MLs open... Emwell Steakhouse. The very last week, there were a lot of things that were ha- that had to happen, and Ug came down with a very bad flu, and he literally couldn't even be around. And we had installed this trout tank, kind of, um, that's still there at the restaurant. And you know, you sit at the counter as a patron, and then there's the cooks in on the other side, but in between you and the cooks is a, as a trout tank. And Ug had just poured a, basically a cement trough without really thinking through how he was going to keep the trout alive or, you know, necessarily like working out the system of like, how are we going to get the trouts alive and all, you know, he had a kind of an idea, but not really a hundred percent. So I had rigged up this pump system and filter system. We'd gone out to visit the trout hatchery in Long Island and, you know, we're two days before opening now, and Ug is MIA because he's literally deathly ill. Uh, Sarah, it, you know, is also unable to be there for various family and restaurant obligations. 
I'm there with like the, the guys who are going to cook at the restaurant, but it's just me. It's eight in the morning. We're, I turn this rigmarole filter system on. The guy with the trouts is coming to deliver like 80 live trout in the middle of Queens. And we don't really know how we're going to get them from the trout. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Rock into the thing. We don't know if the system's going to work. And it's, you know, it's like crucial because it was like a key dish to Ugg's vision of how the restaurant was going to open this Alsatian dish with Twitter Blue, you know. So you need actual live trout. You need to kill them and dip them in vinegar right away. And so this is like... It's the only thing Ugg cares about. Like, yeah, I'm sure he cared about his baby and his wife and those things too. But at this moment, it was pretty much all. And he's just texting me like, and and the pressure's on and this truck comes and we we open up the thing and there's the trout. And it, like when you're fishing and you pull up a live trout, you're like pretty excited, you know. You see 80 trout swimming in the back of a pickup truck in Queens and you're like excited and confused and, and you're like, shit, it's like having 80 babies delivered at once and you know because they're like they're going to be the face of the restaurant sort of thing so we're we rig up a bucket brigade system we start getting the trouts in they're in there and then you know the guy leaves but then i've got 80 trout in this system that in this sink that i don't know if they're going to lie stay alive or die or you know the the one advantage i had at the time was that i was actually living in the restaurant so I was staying in an Airstream trailer in the back of the restaurant. And that's like I would shower every couple of days at Oog's apartment. But so I just literally camped out that night and kept watching the trout and having to adjust the hose or the pump. And it was getting clogged and this that, and the other. And I'm like literally sitting alone, drinking Ricard, you know, staring at fish all night, hoping that they didn't die, you know, and it was happily they didn't like we we got through it eventually the system got better and everything like that but i mean i was pretty fucking stressed man the seafood industry is obviously super complicated on a global scale but you know just thinking about north america could you maybe explain your perspective on the issues at hand and then ways that we could actually try to improve it we're unbelievably fortunate as a as a population in that we still have massive access to this wild protein you know any other thing that we eat whether it's tofu or pork or beef it's farmed and we're quite accepting of that and and that's normal we don't ask for wild chickens you know yeah my dad goes and shoots wild turkey during the season and stuff like that but you know if i had to live off my dad's wild turkey i would I would be dead because he doesn't catch that much, you know. And so, you know, we, we're we're very accepting of all those products being farmed, except when it comes to fishing. And, and you know, with fishing, because we haven't been able to catch everything in the ocean, we still have, you know, half of our seafood comes from the wild uh, harvest. And 
I think that's amazing. And I think that's, again, you know, allows us to really connect with that other world that is the ocean. You know, it's, it's really like, I think there's two earths. There's the one that we walk on and then there's the one that we can't walk on. And, and the one that we can't walk on is its own earth. I don't think it gives a shit about us. You know, it, it's, we'll never catch all the fish. And when we're dead and gone, the, that second earth will continue to thrive. But in the meantime, we're catching what we can. And I think that we are trying to save a lot of it in terms of quote unquote sustainability or what have you, you know, out of selfishness. If we were truly, we truly wanted to make the ocean right again, we would just stop harvesting from the ocean and go to farming, which is what we've done on the land, you know? And we have super tight controls on the wild products on the land, deer or moose or whatever. And essentially we have no controls on the wild in the water because even though we monitor fisheries, you know, there's a lot of fishing that happens illegally, illicitly outside of borders. Um, It's difficult to count the ocean, things like that. So I think that, I mean, the ultimate savior to the ocean is for us to figure out how to farm it correctly you know whether it's in closed containment on land or in the ocean we can continue to to try and make our efforts better on the water and i think that we've made massive strides in terms of like the monterey aquarium and msc and you know the marine seafood council and and ocean wise in canada and stuff like that and happily we were having those conversations because 10 or 15 years ago that wasn't part of the conversation at all i think though that those have limited value because they they're not really going to solve the problem 100 years from now they're we're doing our best to selfishly keep that fish around so that we can keep eating it like we're saving the fish so we can keep eating it it doesn't make sense and when you really think about it to the the final extreme we don't want to not have these products down the road but for me, a lot of now when I look at that part of the seafood business and I think, okay, can we really save the fish? Maybe, maybe not. But what is most important to me in the shop is how are the people who are working in that business getting treated? You know, we don't think about a lot of times, you know, how the avocado pickers get treated and stuff like that, you know, and, and it's the same with fish. A lot of the shrimp fishermen, you know, in the in the Thailand and Indonesia and stuff like that, you know, Associated Press had a huge series of articles about how poorly they were treated, essentially slaves on boats and, you know, environmental standards not being adhered to when you look at uh, certain fish like bassa and, uh, you know, tilapia and uh, in Hawaii even, it's the one state it's, it has a unique set of rules and laws that mean that they can keep people and typically men on boats and pay them almost like nothing they pay them about 70 cents an hour and when they boats go to shore the men are not allowed to go to shore they have to stay on the boat and unless they need medical attention literally you know and there's, and so i think to me it's it's almost as important or more important to highlight 
the conditions that the fish are being raised in and or the conditions that the people fishing them are having to deal with as it is to worry about the health of that fish stock. And I think that, you know, going forward, that will be a lot of what I'm sort of looking towards is the human and environmental component of the fish business as opposed to just strictly worried about the fish stocks. Well, your current restaurant, Honest Weight, uh, you sell and serve like cockles and limpets and, you know, some pretty obscure and alien-like uh, seafood. Uh, where does that fit into this vision you have of of seafood and fishing? You know, the smaller the, the thing is that comes out of the ocean, the more likely it is to reproduce more quickly. And the... Uh, impact on its re- the impact on the overall environment of its removal from that little area is going to be very minimal. So I, I definitely recommend eating small shellfish, small fish, things like that uh, as well. If we are worried in general about sustainability, then the more things we eat, the better. You know, if we think if somebody says, "Okay, this fish X is totally sustainable." you know, totally guilt-free, eat as much of it as you want. We're going to do that. It's going to be on every menu. All of a sudden, poke is going to, every poke bar is going to feature that fish, whatever. And then 10 years from now, they'll be like, breaks, breaks on. We can't fish that fish anymore. We, we fucked up the counts or whatever it is. But so I don't think it's, you know, I think that when we eat beef or whatever, we're, that's one species when you're in the butcher shop, it's all, all the steaks are pretty much, you know, they're all coming from a cow. It might be a slightly different breed of cow or some of that, but it's still farm-raised cows. But when you're fishing, when you look in the fish case, it's all different species. So the more species that we eat, the less likely we are to put too much pressure on one particular one. So that's why I do like to highlight things. And as I say, I think that the the fishing, when you go to the human element, then a lot of those things are coming from very small communities or they're being harvested by hand and you know they're a traditional food being uh, handled in a traditional way and it's generally very um, environmentally conscious and people conscious you know so I think there's a lot of value in, in exploring the unknown or little known or um, potentially weird looking things you know why why not go for it right i mean you know there's nothing nothing lost in trying things you haven't tried before and a lot to be gained and is that important for you uh you know you describe on its weight as a fish counter and restaurant is it important for you to kind of you know educate people through what you're serving about this huge range of of sea life i think unlike what we're doing today, you don't want to be too um, structured in how you have a conversation at Honest Weight. You know, you want to be a fish shop and a restaurant first and a an educational facility second. You know, you, you want to make people f- feel welcome and warm and having fun. And if they're in an environment that they do feel warm and welcome when they're sitting there in the restaurant, they're going to start asking questions. And if they're there because they're buying a piece of fish for the first time, 
if you make them feel good about the purchase, they go home, they enjoy it, they come back. Then the more times they come back, the more the questions they ask. So I think it's more incremental and, and more of an environmental or like the environment has to be conducive to chit chat at the restaurant. And that's how you educate people. But you don't do it in a block of information because people are not going to remember that necessarily. You know what I mean? And, and maybe they don't want to be sit talking to you for 20 minutes either they just want to get on the way you know so i you know i think the restaurant serves a, an incredible purpose in in terms of its potential and it's what people want to do with that you know um but unlike a traditional structured restaurant there is more potential i think in the the retail setup the hybrid setup that uh you know can be explored to as as deep as people want Going back to the idea of like the, the as you say, strange or weird, um, lesser known sea creatures, can you describe maybe a couple of your favorites and just the way that you like to eat them? I think it's funny because I, I don't know what people think are weird, you know, like, and everybody has a different tolerance and, and understanding of what weird is. I think that, for example, if you're looking at something like uh, whelks, you know, which are like a big sea snail, or sometimes people confuse them with conch, but conch or conch are much bigger. Um, you know, and a whelk has a lot of labor involved. Not a lot. I don't want to. I don't want to dissuade people from trying whelks. I want you to. I want you to try whelks. So they're really easy to prepare. Uh, you you know you'll have to put them in a pot a little bit of water, get the steam going. You pull the, you know, after about five minutes, you take the whelks, you know, cool them off a little bit with uh, some running cold water. You pull them out of the shell. And, and there are two obvious sort of zones on the on the whelk. There's the kind of where the meat's more white and then where the meat goes brown to, to d- very dark color. So you just trim off the brown bits. And then you take that white meat, which then is almost kind of a cross between a clam and a scallop. You know, because the meat is pretty white and sweet and you slice it thinly and you just do it in a simple vinaigrette or something like that. And, you know, like Italians would know it as uh, scongili, you know, although now you don't see scongili on too many menus or if you do, it's usually canned conch or something like that. Uh, But, you know, to have a really fresh uh, shaved fennel and some fennel fronds, uh, beautiful olive oil, a little white wine or apple cider vinegar, salt and pepper, and just the sliced uh, whelk. It's unbelievably delicious. Like, it's it's fucking fantastic. And you serve it cold, you know? Or you can take that whelk, and, and we've done it at the, at the restaurant where we, uh, again, you know, just cut it into slices or chunks and, and do it in kind of a sherry cream. The sherry has that nice sort of nuttiness, uh, you know, the oxidized sort of character. And plays well with the, the the flavor of the meat and the cream sort of holds it all together and gets people excited and throw it on some toast and you know whelks on sh- whelks on toast with some sherry cream sauce so that's a, that's an example of something that has basically dropped off the map for a lot of people and you can buy jarred whelks and and canned whelks and they're actually quite good in general uh you know at the shop we have ones from the Ile de Madeleine or Magdalen Islands so the east coast of Canada uh, and those are done packed by hand, you know, and that kind of product 
is perfect out of a, a jar or a can. I mean, I prefer it fresh, but it's unbelievably nutritious. It's grown naturally and wild and organically. It's hand harvested by people making a living wage and processed the same way. And you know, there's, there's no reason to not eat them. I can't think of one single reason not to eat them. And then you get to, and when you, if you steal them yourself, you get to keep these cool shells. You soak them in some javel, some bleach or something like that. And, uh, you know, let them dry out and for your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews, they're amazing and cool, you know, or they look very stylish as a centerpiece on your table when you're throwing your, your seafood pasta dinner or something like that. So, you know, I, I, that's, as I say, that's the first one that comes to mind, but whether you're talking smelts or moon snails or the hundreds of clams or crawfish, butterfish, um, you know, there's just so many things. Mackerel is, is a massive, massively underappreciated fish. And, you know, I think, it, I think mackerel is one of the fish that is starting to come back on certain, you know, thoughtful menus. Uh, I've seen it more and more, but 10 years ago, you would never have seen it anywhere. And so I'm very pleased about that. And, you know, the Northeast Canadian U.S. mackerel fishery is pretty strong and healthy. So, um, again, an, an amazing and flexible fish, whether you smoke it or put it in, uh, just put it on the barbecue grilled. It, it's it's basically tuna. It's a baby tuna in terms of the way it cooks, the way it handles. And so instead of focusing on bluefin tuna or toro or something like that, get mackerel. You know, it's literally as good or better in so many ways than, than that bluefin tuna that you should not be eating. I don't care what people say. Uh, it seems that like by emphasizing these underappreciated um, seafoods that it's also the consumer wins also because it's so much cheaper than like lobster or crab. Definitely. I mean, look at scallops now. I mean, scallops are a good thing to eat and they're obviously very easy to prepare and they look pretty on a plate and all that. But I mean, now to get high quality scallops, I have to pay over $20 a pound and that's fine. I'm happy to pay it. And if other people in the shop are happy to buy them at that price, or obviously we mark it up, that's, that's great. But, you know, you can buy macro for a quarter of that price you know, or clams for a third of that price or something. And are you going to be more satisfied eating a scallop than you are eating a clam or four clams for the same price? I don't know. I don't think so. I think that you, some people convince themselves, they read a recipe and they think, oh, well, I'm going to cook that and I'm not going to deviate from that at all. But like to take, you know, to take scallops out of the recipe and put whelks in instead or or, you know, to take tuna out of the recipe and put mackerel in, you've saved yourself a pile of dough. You've helped the world. <laughs> and it's just as delicious and maybe even more delicious. Thanks so much to John Bill, the staff at Honest Weight, and our Canadian staff writer, Nick Rose. Thank you to my podcast producer, Phil Domahovsky, who makes everything sound so much better. So the next time you're in Toronto, stop by Honest Weight and ask John what you should be eating for dinner tonight. 
Check back in two weeks for our next episode of Munchies the Podcast. And until then, get all of our delicious Munchies content over at munchies.tv. Hit us up at Munchies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook too. And if you like the show, rate it on iTunes and show us some love because it actually helps us out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.